Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. As you know if you've listened before, on this podcast we focus on personal growth, self-development, and the key internal and interpersonal strengths that help us through the hard parts of being human. To simplify it neatly, this is a self-help podcast. And there's a lot to like about self-help. The desire to better oneself and through that achieve some kind of reliable happiness and well-being in this often unreliable world is a very noble one. And I have nothing but respect for people who put the time and effort in that's necessary to achieve that goal. Uh, Speaking personally, it's obviously been a pretty big part of my life. But there's a problematic side to self-help too. From overclaiming gurus and pseudoscience to forced happiness and toxic positivity to full cults and half occults and everything in between to proselytizing elements of self-help to other people and to the abuses of power that some individuals often uh, fall into, there are plenty of pitfalls to avoid here. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring some of those topics. So to help me do that, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing? I'm good, and I'm very interested in this topic because both I deal with this space to a fair extent for a living, and second, in terms of my own personal life journey from the late 60s on forward, I've kind of been in the middle of this uh, myself, and I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly from the inside out, as well as the outside in. So I'm really happy we're going to talk about this. Yeah, same. I mean, this is something that I've been thinking about for a long time, including kind of how to approach it in a thoughtful way. Because of course, as we know, there's a lot that's great about self-help and personal development and all of those things. So as with many things, this is kind of about finding the middle road and highlighting some of the challenges that can emerge without also throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So before we get into all of that, I do want to remind everyone about our new Patreon account. You could find us at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, and you can become a patron if you would like to support the show, and you'll receive a variety of benefits in return. Also, if you've been listening to and enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out, and we do really appreciate it. I'd love to start here just with your own experience that you kind of alluded to here. You've been in the personal growth game on one level or another for about 50 years. So what are some of the examples of this, maybe quickly, that you've kind of seen and experienced yourself in your own life, uh, just some of the things that have stuck out to you as kind of themes. Yeah, maybe a couple of kind of themes or even stories that might set the table here for this conversation. Yeah, please, totally. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, I So I came of age really in the mid-60s. I became aware of a world around me, and I grew up in a decent, fairly stable, but what could be called completely pedestrian or as a guru of mine at one point, which I'll get to, referred to as downtown way of looking at the human possibilities. So uh, to me, the human possibilities were kind of summarized as do a good job and get to the weekend and then reset on Monday. Then I went off to college, uh, but even before going there in 1969, I became increasingly aware kind of on the periphery of the development of the hippies, the counterculture, the beat movement, some sort of Eastern Japanese Zenish kind of tinge moving in, uh, institutions like Esalen, you know, human potential, 
wild and crazy stuff, like people nude in hot tubs would. But on the other hand, some breakthroughs, some possibilities, it all seemed very cool. And it opened up a set of possibilities of what was actually available to us in terms of human potential, a kind of deeper, more lasting, more far-reaching happiness that also at the time then and still now had broader political, economic, and ecological implications that generally speaking, in my view, were were pretty positive. So that's kind of where I started. And then soon after I graduated at UCLA, I was very caught up in uh, positive psychology, kind of humanistic psychology groups, things like that, and then stumbled into the EST training. This is Werner Erhard's program uh, in the early 1970s. Uh, And for example, the EST training had tremendous value in it for me personally, while also wrapped around it uh, was a fair amount of regimentation and sort of teacher, I wouldn't say worship, but uh, just over, you know, just blind respect. And yeah. uh, one of the things mm-hmm. I encountered there, which I then to me is the key characteristic of institutions uh, or people that get into trouble is that it was what was uh, pushed out of the space was the possibility of commenting on, let alone criticizing, the head of the organization. Mm -hmm. And if you then are in situations where you can't talk about the feet of clay of the guru, the teacher, the charismatic leader, then you're gonna get in trouble. And that's one of the things that I saw in many situations. So I've experienced some of that, I've experienced a lot of phoniness, people who are trying to sell their self-help program using themselves as the human billboard, which means that they have to look great. And so you'd walk into parties in LA in the 70s where everybody's trying to pitch everybody else on their current workshop program. It was uh, <laughs> it's so phony and so false um, yeah. that I definitely have experienced religious versions of this. Uh, We're all probably more broadly aware of problems that can happen in organized religion and also even in uh, subgroups where you have a charismatic teacher or guru who also is abusing their students and having sex with people and doing things inappropriate financially. So I, I definitely saw that. And also I've encountered a kind of, to me, dogmatic, unscientific rejection of the possibility of self-development and even the worth of the enterprise of helping yourself become a little more resilient, a little Mm. kinder, a little happier, a little more at peace in yourself, a little more compassionate every day as if there's something wrong with intending to develop in that way. But of course, it's perfectly fine to try to develop your golf game or to get better at you know, running your business. So that's, that's okay. Yeah. But somehow you know, becoming more resilient or, or grateful or compassionate is somehow anathema. And I've run into what to me are just extreme. Talk about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. They throw like 50 babies out with the bathwater. I've been through the whole thing and I'm still in the middle of it today. Uh, <laughs> and I'm a little bit out of the sort of social media, Instagram thing, mm-hmm. you know, where you have mm-hmm. um, a one, you know, you take a one-day program in mindfulness, and then you're now a licensed mindfulness teacher of some kind, mm. whatever that means. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little bit out of touch with that. Uh, I guess at the end of the day, I think that there's certain things that are protective. 
One is an open field in which you can call leaders to account who then take to heart what's genuine and useful in the, in the input and correct accordingly and are visibly apparent or transparent about their own corrections. That, that's good. A second really fast is lineage, standing in lineage. It's mm. when we're outside mm-hmm. lineage that I think we tend, we're more likely to get into trouble. We don't always stay safe when we're in a lineage, but people who are these rogue geniuses, um, maybe, you know, maybe. And then last, you know, do they walk their talk, Mm -hmm. right? How do they conduct themselves in the little details of everyday life? And you and I have had encounters with teachers who on the public stage are wonderful and many, many people appreciate them. But when they think the microphone is off, but it's actually Mm -hmm. not, or people who know about them in their private life, it's really clear that their realization is still very incomplete. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think that those are a couple of great kind of flags to uh, put in the sand of a variety of topics that we could talk about during these episodes. This conversation is probably going to be a little bit more loose and wide ranging than some of the ones that we sometimes have on the podcast, simply because you're going to be speaking from experience a certain amount here. To pick up on something that you kind of lobbed to me as a uh, as a potential transition moment there in terms of talking about social media and things like that, I haven't had so much the experience that you have in the live courses settings or things like that because, of, you know, I'm 32, I'm considerably younger than you are, I've been doing this for a shorter period of time, and also so much of this has moved online for the generation of people that uh, is closer in age to me, and that's where I see a lot of the kind of quote-unquote dark side of self-help coming through is on particularly, I would say, Instagram and YouTube as social media platforms. This is a big topic, but to try to do it really quickly, I think that there has been an enormous positive to the kind of democratization of the access to content and to being able to get your content out there. That's happened in the last uh, 10 to 20 years. The ability for kind of anyone to be an expert has been great on one hand, because so many people have access that have never had access before. And um, I was speaking with uh, Dr. Alfie Breland Noble relatively recently about access to mental health services in underserved communities. And one kind of obvious way that people can, that we can improve issues of access is by increasing the quantity and the availability and caliber of free mental health content. And there is an enormous amount of free mental health content on the internet, on YouTube, on Instagram, whatever. The question is, now that it's so easy to be an expert, what is validating that individual as an expert? And that is a big and tricky question because I don't think that everyone should need to venture to the ivory tower of academia in order to be able to have really good ideas about how to practically help people. There are a lot of issues with requiring everyone to have a master's degree in order to share a certain kind of content, because master's degrees are expensive, and not everyone can afford them. Uh, So having these other verticals is really valuable. On the other hand, it is so easy to fake credentialing through social media. It is so easy to overclaim. There's no real accreditation process. And as you're saying with the point about lineage, like lineage is very uncertain. You drop into a random video that has 2 million views and somebody's kind of talking to you through the computer and they sound authoritative. 
your instinct is going to be to believe them. But I've seen plenty of people on Instagram who have 2 million followers and no idea what they're talking about, like very clearly. And I've seen people with 2,000 followers who do great content and are saying things that are thoughtful and deep and uh, validated by research. And it's just kind of very tightly done. So that that kind of Instagramification of self-help, including a lot of toxic positivity, which is what we're going to kind of lean into more today, the kind of uh, just rub some dirt on it mentality of a lot of self-help or maybe putting it another kind of way, just put like a glowy picture background on it. That's it. That, you know, it'll all be okay. And I think that that's increasingly become something that the mental health slash personal growth slash self-help slash whatever space is going to have to reckon with as these platforms become only more pervasive. And they're, and they're already at close to 100% pervasion. So as that expands, this is only going to be more of a thing that we're going to have to collectively wrestle with. At the risk of sounding like a grumpy old guy, <laughs> I want to maybe, and also because partly because this topic is inherently very sprawling, mm -hmm. I want to just drop in as succinctly as I can some one sentence views, yeah, and then we can ahead. see if there's any validity to them. So one is that it's okay to seek wholesome goals pursued with wholesome means, while hopefully at some level being at peace with whatever happens. Whether that's trying to, as I'm now actually trying to, learn how to cook tofu and to prepare it in advance. <laughs> so I've got some lying around here as I shift out of animal-based protein for myself. That's okay, number one. Number two, there are certain things that don't need a lot of expertise. When you realize that it's useful when interactions start to heat up to slow down and find your footing. When you know that, you know as much as anybody worldwide knows about that particular thing, and you can teach from that. You don't, and you shouldn't need a master's yeah, degree or a two-year mindfulness certification training to do that. And I think there is a tendency uh, driven by bad reasons as well as good uh, toward guildism and credentialing and gatekeeping and who gets to be the true keeper of the flame and really get to represent themselves as a fill in the blank, uh, psychodynamically oriented therapist, a uh, mindfulness uh, trained teacher, you know, who gets to uh, do that? And I think, honestly, uh, this kind of goes to a personal attitude I have that's fairly individualistic and and independent that says, you know, if you if you got it, you can talk about it. You don't need to know everything about something to say something about it. And I and I think there are these naysayers out there who say, oh no, if you don't know everything about it and you haven't gotten a PhD in it somehow or written 48 papers about it, no, you can't talk about it at all. And I just think that's that's silly on the one hand. On the other hand, we need to beware the pitfalls that have to do with what are our true intentions. What is the intention in our heart? When we are helping ourselves, as it were, look on the bright side, is that to give ourselves refuge and healing to recognize what is also true amidst the losses and sorrows? Or are we doing it as a spiritual bypass? Or are we doing it to be superior to others who are still grieving and mourning a particular loss? Or are we doing it because at some level inside, we just don't want to feel our feelings? You know, what's our purpose? 
when mm-hmm. we're mm-hmm. Uh, teaching a method or tool? You know, are our purposes clean and good? You know, are we staying within the frame of you know telling the truth about it? Uh, if we're doing it for money, are we offering real value for what we're getting in a frame of right livelihood, or are we teaching it as a way to claim authority and look groovy and to you know get narcissistic supplies from other people? What's really our intention behind it? So okay, I'll. Stop there, my old guy rant here. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I've flicked out a, a few maybe controversial uh, points for you to play off of. No, and I, I don't think that there's any old man shaking fist at Sky here, Dad. I think that that was all pretty pretty well, well couched and uh, thoughtful, and I totally agree with you. And I think that part of what makes this conversation a little complicated is that almost all of the things that um, have negatives here come from something that has a positive on the other side of it. So talking about this question of access and the availability of mental health resources, but also the flip side, you're not as sure necessarily about the expertise level of the person that you're getting this content from. And as you're saying, some things require low expertise and some things require high expertise. If I'm going in to get a medical procedure done on me, I want to know that my surgeon's an expert. Yeah. Equally, if I'm quote unquote, going in to do some deep trauma work or something like that, I want to know that the person's an expert. Yeah. And uh, that isn't always obviously the case out in the big, wide, scary world of social media. But I think that those flags that you planted are really right on the money and totally co-signed them. And I want to kind of pick up something that you said in terms of wandering us toward this topic more broadly of forced happiness, where you were talking about um, that dislike of experiencing negative emotion inside of ourselves and the ways in which we can move other people to be more comfortable so we don't ourselves have to experience discomfort, which I think is a big hallmark of any kind of toxic positivity or forced happiness. So when we kind of use those phrases, what comes to mind for you? How do you think about them? I immediately think about parties I've been to, gatherings in the self-help world, uh, particularly in LA. I, you know, no knock on LA, right? But there's something about the focus <laughs> on image there and this mm. persona, this false self, this act that's presented out into the world. Uh, if I could just introduce a model that you're familiar with, it's one of the most useful models of the psyche I've ever come across. Basically, it's three concentric circles. The outer circle is the act, you know, who we present ourselves as to the world and sometimes who we want to think we are. Then inside that, the term, and I think this comes from uh, Nichiren Shoshu, I believe. So I want to acknowledge source and lineage, perhaps, but see, people can, you know, evaluate this on its own merits as they see them. So in the second circle, there is what they call the scared self, who we are afraid we are who we don't want the world to see us as, but we fear is actually true about us. And then in the third circle, at the center of it all, is our being, who we really are, right? So there's a place for a bit of an act. For example, we're in situations where we think a lot of things, so we see a lot of things, but we only say a little bit of that. There's a selectivity there, minimally. But at least what we do say is authentically true for us. Then there are other situations where it's just appropriate to kind of lean in more in one direction or another direction in, in the presentation of ourselves. And there's some internal management of, of our own expression and the style we take. But when you start being phony, when there's a certain disconnect or 
falsification of what you really feel deep down inside, then you get in trouble with yourself and with other people. And so a lot of the process of personal growth is to resource yourself so that you can gradually disidentify from your act. For me, my act as a kid was intellect a lot, being the smart kid, the one who knew and you know was, was had the right answers. So I've had to learn to be brave enough to disengage from that and to reveal increasingly the scared self, what's underneath it all, the deeper feelings, parts of ourselves that we've disowned, and allow them to be more integrated and included. So then you start to feel that you're with someone who's more permeable. They're more porous. You know, they're, mm -hmm. You're with the real them. When you lean on them, there's a there there. Uh, it's not like if you crash through their persona, you fall through space before you bump into some underlying you know, psychological structure. And then yeah. increasingly also, as the act starts cracking open and we process more of the scared self, the being can radiantly shine through, you know, more mm. fundamentally. To me, that summarizes a lot of good stuff. Totally agree. I think that that was a much more high-minded framework than I had in mind. So thank you for that. I thought that that was awesome. And of course, you know, natural tie into Jungian psychology with the shadow self and all Very that good, good stuff yeah. there, if you're interested in exploring some of those topics. Yeah, I think that that's a great way to think about it in terms of our own journey of self-development around kind of forced happiness and reclaiming a wholer experience of our interior, which includes negative sensations, so we don't disassociate from them for our comfort. I guess that when I think of those phrases, again, my mind kind of goes to social media. You know, social media mostly exists in the realm of ACT. And I think that particularly in the kind of self-help, mental health, if you, if you follow anyone on social, particularly on Instagram, who lives in those territories, it is pretty rare to see a post that is not essentially about how awesome their life is on some level. And that's normal. That's what people are going to be inclined to share. They're going to share the pretty pictures and they're going to share the whatever. I also think of it in corporate culture a lot. Uh, I spoke with Liz Foslian a while ago, who is a kind of workplace emotionality expert and uh, building environments that are more conducive to the expression of the full range of emotions, where a lot of co corporate culture is founded on the idea of leave your frown at home, essentially. And we spend, you know, most people spend eight to 10 hours a day uh, in an office or in a work environment working with other people. And those transactional moments of, oh, how are you, Bob? Oh, I'm doing great. You know, that starts to become your whole life a little bit, and you never penetrate that act with people. So creating environments where people feel comfortable and safe doing that is really important. And then last, I would just say the whole idea of kind of just get over it is probably the most pervasive and damaging part for me of forced happiness. Uh, we spoke with Joanne Cacciatore, who's an expert on traumatic grief. She spoke extremely eloquently about the importance of allowing people to feel their feelings and process through their experience, as opposed to kind of trying to steal their grief from them, essentially, and force them more rapidly into happiness. And then we have to ask ourselves, why are we trying to force people into happiness? Well, it's what continues to make us comfortable. It's what continues to perpetuate our homeostasis. Um, so there are motivating factors there for this culture that aren't just about like, you know, hey, everyone, let's be happy together. There are um, there are benefits that groups and individuals can receive from forcing happiness onto other people. So that's kind of how I think about toxic positivity. Going back to my experience of different situations I've been in, including experiences I have now with people who are teachers, broadly defined in the general domain of psychology and so forth, 
a few observations. One observation is that there's no substitute for real. In other words, are they receiving you for real? And are they being real in response in ways that are appropriate given the business environment or the sales transaction? You're just sitting next to them on a bus. It's not appropriate to become best friends with each other probably, but are they real for what it is, right? And an interesting thing happens when people swerve from the real. When people swerve from the real, it sends a chilling message to others that it's not okay to be real or that we need to circumscribe, we need to be real, as it were, only inside this small box. Anything outside that box, no, it's out of bounds. That has a really chilling effect. And one reason, honestly, why why I personally, in my own life's journey, have tended to swerve away from working in uh, large organizations is because they do tend to constrain the real for various reasons, some of them good, many of them bad. It's useful for us as a takeaway to ask ourselves, what is, what is it like to be with another person? Do we feel like there's room to be real? Or are they nudging us continually to, to keep it in the box in some way? Mm. And one way that happens is they might just ignore our attempts to move outside the box a little bit. But the fact that they're not acknowledging even the existence of that movement to be a little more open, a little more intimate, a little more genuine, to allow the frown to be there um, has a suppressing impact. And flip it around then, think about ways in which we can be an ally to others in a sense. We can be encouraging uh, and a benefactor. We can be a support Mm. to others Mm -hmm. who are wanting to take one step in a time to expand their own box of authentic, Mm. real self-expression. Yeah, I want to narrow in on something you were saying there about authenticity, which I think is really essential to this whole thing, because somebody might rightfully be thinking or asking themselves here, well, what's wrong with just trying to be happier? Um, I mean, Rick, obviously an enormous portion of your work is focused on the power of positive emotions and the ability we have to change our brain over time by internalizing good experiences that can become good states that can become good lasting traits in the brain. So positive emotions and positive experiences absolutely have a lot of benefits for us. Things like lower stress, better cardiovascular health, building good mental habits, whatever. A lot of my macro level opposition to a culture that continually moves people away from their negative feelings and negative experiences, uh, this includes things like the power of positive thinking or the secret or the law of attraction, or whatever else. If we promote a view that positively, but that positivity cures everything that ails us, we're essentially telling people that if they're not better, it's their fault. Mm. And that's really deeply problematic. Like, if people are only unhappy because they essentially haven't believed hard enough yet, then, wow, there's obviously a whole host of problems that can stem from that. And, yeah, Sometimes that's really the case. Like a person can absolutely be just wallowing in self pity or not setting themselves up for success or stuck in some kind of like a limited frame of mind where they're imposing restrictions on themselves that don't actually exist. But for me, I view positivity as, or quote unquote positivity, however you want to talk about it, um, the law of attraction, believing in yourself, thinking that you can accomplish a thing as a necessary but not a sufficient condition. You need it 
in order to be able to accomplish something, but you need other things too. And for me, it just comes down to that idea of authenticity. Is the positive experience of an emotion authentic? These positive experiences and emotions have enormous power to impact the brain in our life if they're real. That's it, right? It's about if they're real. So forced happiness becomes this kind of gaslighting, right? Your experience, your truth, your authentic negative emotion is invalidated by the structures that are placed around you, and you're kind of forced into a non-authentic way of being. So that was a bit of a riff there, but I think that that basic idea of searching for our authentic experience so we can become that more whole person that you were talking about before, so we can move through that uh, that shadow material, if you will, into a more whole realization of ourself is really what sometimes forced happiness gets in the way of, and it's why it's kind of such a problem. And I think that when we're just watching the highlights of somebody else's life, it can make us feel really small by comparison. It's funny, like there's a line from Adrian Rich, poet and and commentator, who wrote a beautiful book about motherhood of woman born. I highly recommend it uh, for anyone who's having a child, uh, whether mother or father, uh, of woman born. And she uses the phrase, the mask of motherhood, and the Mm -hmm. ways in which many women, let's say, in the 80s when she wrote this, probably many today as well, who feel they have, they have to put up a front, right? So there's that front we put up. And I think the issue of masks and front has been with us for a long, 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 long time. And we see different cultural variations on approaches of that. So the, this issue of the false front, the persona, it's been a longstanding issue, not just in the positivity space, as it were. Absolutely, yeah. Totally. And, I, and I'm not saying that to undermine what you're saying, but more just to kind of broaden this issue. And where I think also we get into trouble with it is when we thingify ourselves or thingify others, we edify them or we productize them. I've been laughing lately about this, sta- about this statement, my brand is authenticity. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know you're in deep trouble. Authenticity, it's my brand, <laughs> right? It's my personal trademark. Ah, there's a problem there. And mm-hmm. that's something that I do think is, a, is in the mix here where people feel like they've got to sell who they are as some sort of kind of person. And that's really different. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, I'm a professional athlete. athlete. I sell how well I can sink the three three-point shot in basketball, say, okay. Uh, Or I'm a surgeon. I sell, in effect, how well um, I can do surgery. Okay. But if we're in the territory of psychology or consciousness, you know, new age, self-help, transformation, that space, if part of what you're selling is your own realization, then it's a very short hop to reifying your state of being and feeling like you have to manufacture a presentation to get people into your meditation retreat or your mm-hmm. online program, things like that. And that, that, that yeah. that's where I think we can get into a lot of trouble. Totally, totally. And for me, where I see the kind of negative knock-on effects are people witnessing this. So not so much, I mean, in that person's life, it's probably not great. But if that person has, you know, if you're the kind of person who follows a lot of mental health types on social media or just out in life, constantly seeing that message of all of the smiling faces can sometimes make it really challenging to interact effectively 
with our more challenging emotions um, and those kind of experiences of ourselves that make us that whole person. So a little while ago, you mentioned something that I want to pick up on, which was uh, things that we can do to make other people feel more comfortable bringing more of their full self to the table. You were talking about this in conversation. How do you think about doing that? How do you think about creating a space, whether it was when you were working with clients or just out in your life, where you can kind of encourage somebody to bring that vulnerability out? One is through our own example, and one very specific thing that I think is helpful to pay attention to is, can you feel it while you say it? Mm. In other words, if you feel happy and you're, you're talking about feeling happy, are you feeling it while you're saying it? Are you integrated? as you speak it. By doing that, just simply that, we make more room for other people to themselves feel it while they say it and to say what they're actually feeling. Hmm. That's one thing. Rather than uh, reporting on our own experience uh, in a very detached way. I've been around many people who could give you a master's thesis on their own psychology, but had not learned anything from writing it. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. (laughs) they could describe it forever they could share they could you know at some odd ad nauseum but the question is what's the purpose are you is it the seeing that frees to draw on a beautiful book from rob burbay i think uh, who passed away recently english mindfulness teacher british mindfulness teacher and you know is the sharing freeing are you sharing your inner truth to be free of it to be free in relationship to it to grow from it to to help others become free, you know, that's one thing. And as we do that, we help others in the process. That's a very real standard to take a look at ourselves in terms of. Second, uh, I've, I keep swearing I'm going to write a book about relationships called Turning Points. And what I mean by that, <laughs> I don't know if I ever will, but relationships are built from interactions. So what are the qualities of the interactions that you repeatedly have with someone? That's what shapes the relationship over time, the accumulating effect of those interactions, most of which uh, are less than a minute long before there's a kind of reset and then a new sort of interaction begins to occur with the same person even over a five-minute conversation. All right. Interactions are built from turning points that are a little bit like volleys in ping pong or tennis, a back and forth, turn-taking. So They say something, you say something, they say something, you say something, and say broadly, tone, behavior, demeanor, action, and so forth. So one of the things I'm really struck by is how uh, uh, on our side, we basically make a bid for contact or a bid for greater intimacy or depth with someone in an appropriate way. We might disclose a little bit, or there might be a kind of pulling for inclusion, appreciation, approval, understanding, respect, love, whatever it is, we're, we're there. So that's where we start. And now we've set the ball over the net. And then people do all kinds of stuff. And one of the things I'm just struck by is people who uh, will not go into rapport with the bid for one micro step deeper intimacy, connectedness, Mutual Mm -hmm. authenticity, mutuality of regard, a mutuality of interactivity. So there's a, a so the flow influence flows both ways. You know, you're receptive to their influence, they're receptive to your influence in in perfectly appropriate ways. And then that interaction 
times a million, right? At least 10,000 gradually constructs a relationship. So I think paying attention to what happens when you send the ball of intimacy over the over the net is useful. If knowing, if only for yourself and seeing if it's at all possible to comment on that eventually with the other person, that's good. Flip the other way. If we want to help other people, we can be much more attentive for their, you know, their bids for realness. They're the subtleties of their facial expressions that are a little softer before the defense comes back or the word that's a little more revealing or the tone that's a little more revealing before they kind of back away from what they've exposed. And then how do we respond to that? Is there an invitation on our side that's appropriate for more depth? Uh, are we willing to be, if they're going one half step deeper in terms of exposure, can we match that? Can we stay in rapport with them if, you know, how, how they are? Um, you know, that I think is something that we can pay attention to. And in the process of paying attention to that, we can foster a, a space, a field um, in, in which other people feel safer to go a little deeper themselves. Yeah, no, I think that's really well said. And something that I want to kind of turn to, because I think that that's a great way to think about it in that relational aspect, is to the experience that I'm really thinking of for myself of you are feeling not great in an environment where it feels like you're supposed to be feeling great, whether that's a business environment or a party or a interaction with a friend where they're really happy about something, but you're bummed about something going on in yourself. And for me, because I'm, I'm me, I'm my, you know, like I think listeners will be familiar with this and will laugh at what I'm about to say. It's kind of helpful for me to know on a certain level that there are many studies that have shown that there are a lot of consequences to hiding or denying our negative feelings that have shown that generally people feel a lot more stressed uh, when they do that than when they started out. And I think of the great line from Young, I'd rather feel whole than good which I think is an amazing line. And it's not always true. There are environments where I'd rather feel good than whole. But a lot of the time, it's better to feel whole than good. And know that there's a real importance to feeling the feelings, to processing our emotions, and to moving through them rather than around them. And what I see a lot in interactions is people try to move around things that are in the space rather than moving through them. And that to me, again, is a big hallmark of kind of forced happiness. We just pretend that the elephant isn't in the room and hope that it'll eventually go and visit someone else. But it doesn't always work that way. And as I'm sure you know from, you know, however many years of clinical therapy and process with people, um, it's all those old lines about what we resist persists and the return of the repressed and all of those ideas from psychology that hammer home the importance of working through those experiences that are just natural parts of being human. 100%, completely true. It's interesting, my own journey. Uh, so I grew up and I learned to say nothing. <laughs> mm. And because it wasn't safe, it was you know, uncool, you know, with other kids, with my family, just, I learned to just burp, say nothing, leave it all out, or uh, just keep it at a very superficial level. You know, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, kind of thing. And then um, moving into college and the human potential movement, especially in the 1970s and even the 80s, I said everything. I just dumped it all, 
all out there, all over the floor, all over the table, and including on other people who are sometimes a little overwhelmed at all the bleeding that was landing on them, <laughs> if not vomit or other excrement. Anyway, and now I've learned, I think, kind of I swung back to middle place where the truth is we don't have to say everything. We can be a little thoughtful. Uh, it's important to feel to be whole internally, but to be clear, what we're talking about here doesn't mean that we just stop when we're feeling sadness or anger or fear or inadequacy, you know, the four major quote-unquote negative emotion fields. Uh, we don't stop there, but we need to start there. And much as the Buddha taught, you know, the first noble truth was not liberation. The first noble truth was the fact of suffering. We start with suffering, right? Where does it hurt? What's it like to be you? What's really going on? Deep down inside, what's it like to be you? That's where we start. That's where we always have to start with ourselves and with other people, but it's not where we stop. So just that part. And then the, the last little thing I just want to say about this is that in terms of checking out uh, gurus and stuff, teachers of various kinds, I think it's really good to watch their ethics. And people who are ethical about little things are more likely to be trustworthy about big ones. If there's something kind of deceptive or slippery in the language of their sales campaign, if they're promoting a program or product, uh, if in your encounters with them, it's hard to get a refund uh, and they, they want to kind of hold on to the money. If you start to feel itted by them, you know, in the structure of I-thou relationships, Martin Buber's framework, I-thou compared to I-it, when you start to feel like they're, they're really commoditizing you, they're seeing you as a commodity, you're just a bank account, you're just a checkbook, and that's fundamentally how they see you. You're one more mark to be exploited. You know, then you can realize, okay, I need to steer clear of this. And at the end of the day, I think the most fundamental uh, measure or metric is how do you feel around this person, both when you're with them and as you walk away? When you walk away, do you feel better about yourself? Do you feel like uh, enlarged in some ways? Do you feel like seen, like you're a little, you know, you stand a little taller, you feel a little bit, okay, all right. Or when you walk away, do you feel deflated? And I think that's really important to listen to. You know, a lot of people, including people can be very charismatic in this space uh, and have wisdom and have realization and have deep things to say. But when you're, when you walk away after having been around them, how do you feel? Do you, is it like a sugar high, you know, where you're starting to come down from it? Uh, or does it feel like, wow, mm -hmm. this was a wellspring. This was legitimate. You know, I want to come back here because this is the kind of stuff that I could, this is the well I could drink from again and again mm. and again um, mm -hmm. in ways that feel very real to me. Absolutely. I think that that's a great note to kind of close this conversation on and a great point about uh, the kinds of people that we want to move into relationship with inside of this big wide world of self-help and personal growth and all of that good stuff. And, you know, one of the things that I've always appreciated about the way that you run your business, Dad, is I've authentically always found it very uh, earnest and done in a very, you know, upstanding way. And you're extremely rigorous about following all of these uh, practices yourself, which I think is super important. Thanks for appreciating that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So 
I suppose as a kind of final offering to uh, anyone listening, if you want, if it's true for you, you can use this as an opportunity to think about some of the environments where you felt nudged into that kind of forced positivity, and you can kind of decide to yourself the extent to which you want to continue to participate in them, the extent to which you want to hold true to yourself when you're in those environments, and the extent to which it's appropriate to have a little bit of distance between whatever your appropriate act is, based on just the social contract and the way in which we have to kind of move through interactions with other people sometimes, and how you can have that while also having that experience of the wholeness of self, um, and that feeling of the interior and not feeling like any experiences you're having inside, which may be authentically challenging, are being invalidated by the needs of the outside world. And, and that, I think, is a big part of the balance here. On that note, again, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. As we come to a close here, I just wanted to remind you one more time about our Patreon account. It's at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can, you can become a patron, and we really do appreciate it. Uh, we're going to have another episode, I think at least one other episode, focusing on this general topic of challenges and pitfalls and so on in the world of self-help. So look forward to that. And until next time, thanks for listening.